So I entitled my message this morning, The Need for a Father. I don't know about you, but I still remember that moment that the nurse took Autumn for the very first time as I was sitting in a chair and placed my daughter in my hands for the very first time. I have to admit to you, I was absolutely overwhelmed. Absolutely overwhelmed. When it came to children, I was children impaired, okay? No idea. I know you put food in one end, it comes out the other. They need a diaper once in a while. Everything else you call Dina. You know, I mean, I was children impaired. As I sat there with Autumn in my arms, I started to realize the awesome responsibility that God was given me to be a dad. And I felt ill-equipped. I felt that I did not have what it takes to be the dad, the proper dad, the right dad for this beautiful baby girl. So I remember as Dina and Autumn spent a few days in the hospital after a difficult delivery, I remember going home and while the house was quiet, I remember seeking God, I remember praying to God and going from Genesis to Revelation and looking up every single verse on fatherhood that I could find. Because I I felt desperate that this child in a couple of days is coming home and it's my responsibility to raise her the way God would have me to raise her. And so I remember taking notes. I remember writing verses down. I remember talking with my pastor concerning what it means to be a father. And over the course of time, I was going to save this for next year because next year my daughter graduates from high school, but I didn't feel I could wait any longer because the need for a father is greater now than it ever has been before. Our country is in trouble. Our family is in trouble due to the lack of the influence of the father in the family. Let's just be straight up honest. It is such a problem today that our Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, is actually tracking the number of fatherless homes here in America. And do you know that it's at 50%? One out of every two children are growing up in a fatherless home. And this is bringing great distress upon our nation. Why? Because we have scientifically discovered what God has said from the beginning. You start messing with the design and the function of the family, you're only messing to your own hurt, and you are going to reap what you have sown. The CDC became concerned concerning fatherless homes when they discovered that 72% of the U.S. population now states that fatherlessness is the most significant family or social problem facing America. They became more concerned when they discovered the following elements of their statistical research. That fatherless homes produce more children that find themselves in prison in their life. Incarceration rates are astronomical, and the vast majority of people who find themselves in prison were raised in a fatherless home. Suicide, 63% of all suicides in America are dealing with individuals who had no father in the home. 
85% of behavioral disorders have now been discovered come from fatherless homes. High school dropouts, 71% of high school dropouts today are from fatherless homes. When it comes to educational attainment, kids living in a single parent home or in a step family report lower educational expectations on parts of their parents, less parental monitoring of schoolwork, and less overall social supervision than children's from an intact family. When it comes to juvenile detention rates, 70% of juveniles finding themselves in detention are from fatherless homes. The vast majority, 87% of those who are confused concerning their sexual identity are boys who have grown up in fatherless homes. Aggression. Out of 1,200 fourth graders that were monitored and researched and observed, the greater level of aggression came from boys who were from mother-only households. When it came to achievements, listen to this. Children from low-income two-parent families outperformed students from high-income single-parent homes. Almost twice as many high achievers come from two-parent homes as one-parent homes. When it comes to delinquency, only 13% of juvenile delinquents come from families which have a biological mother and father. Criminal activity, the likelihood that a young male will engage in criminal activity doubles if he is raised without a father, and triple if he lives in a neighborhood with a high concentration of single-parent families. This is, these are the facts. And people are concerned. You know, I grew up in an era when I was watching TV that we had television shows like Father Knows Best, right? I'm really dating myself now. The Brady Bunch, okay? But then... As I grew up and I became an adult, and when I had my daughter, there were shows that Father Knows Nothing. And the picture or the depiction of a father was found in Homer Simpson. Or worse yet, the star of Everyone Loves Raymond. That show used to infuriate me because he could do nothing right. Dad was just a buffoon that brought home the money. Mom took care of everything. And the kids could solve even not only their problems, but dad's problems. I'm like, what is going on here? And then the world tried to tell us that dads were irrelevant. They don't really matter. Okay? There's no real impact upon a child's life in a fatherless home. We're now discovering that that's absolutely false in every way, shape, and form. So when I read those statistics, I got even more concerned. Now my responsibility as a father has grown exponentially. So I went to the one place I knew where I could gain the wisdom that God would have for me, and that is His Word. And this morning I would like to take time to look at our responsibility as fathers and why we are so needed in the life of our children. Let us be honest. If we don't take the responsibility to raise our children, there are others waiting in line to do it. If we don't take that opportunity to raise our kids the way God would have us to raise them, there's someone in the secular world that's going to raise our kids for us, even unintentionally. 
So we better be aware of this. So when I began this pursuit, I started out with some general parameters that I wanted to use to guide us through our time this morning. These are, these are things that I took as absolute truths. And I know that's greatly debated in our society today, if absolute truths even exist. But these general parameters were the foundation of the specifics in which I discovered. To begin with, I discovered, or I started out with the general parameter that number one, God designed the family. Okay? Number one, God designed the family. Number two, God's design for the family is perfect. It cannot be augmented in any way. It is perfect just as God designed it to be. Why is it perfect? Because God designed the family according to His personal character. So I can't separate the two. His character is the fingerprint upon the family. And that is what the Scriptures teach us from Genesis to Revelation. God designed each one of us for the role that we are to fulfill in the design for the family. Number four. And in our process of sanctification, part of the image into the person of Jesus Christ is also part of the process of bringing you into the person that God has called you to be. For example, part of the sanctification process in my life was not only drawing me out of the world, drawing me into the image of Jesus Christ, but also equipping me to be the Father that God has called me to be. And number five... God's design for the family was meant to illustrate the gospel to the world. So we're talking about significant things here within the fingerprint of the family that God has left upon it. I want to say to each one of you dads right here today that I thank God for each and every one of you because in my book, you are the true superheroes of our society. We're all inundated with Marvel movies, right? I mean, we've had 35 different Spider-Mans in the last 10 years. You who decide to raise your children as God who has called you to do, and you who make that commitment to raise them as godly children, you are the unsung heroes of our society. And I applaud you for it. Your influence, understand this, your influence is so profound upon your children for greater than any athlete, rock star, actor, I don't think we even give enough credit to fathers these days and they don't even understand that they deserve a lot, especially those who have stuck by their commitments. Your kids are looking to you as an ultimate role model and an ultimate example. Now the responsibility has become even greater. The weight has become even greater. Don't worry about the rock star. Don't worry about the athlete. Don't worry about this. When it comes down to it, your kids are looking at you. They're watching you and how you treat your mother, how you treat your wife, how you interact with your father, how you conduct yourself, the ethics you portray. Those are the things your kids are truly picking up. And so the responsibility grows even greater. Now, trust me, they're not always going to acknowledge that fact, right? 
And they're not always going to appreciate the role that we have as their fathers over them, right? I mean, just think of how things change as they grow throughout the years. When Autumn was four, she was like, my daddy can do anything. I was a superhero to her. There was no doubt about it. At age seven, my, you know, Autumn would look at me and says, my daddy knows everything. He knows a whole lot. But by age eight, well, my father doesn't quite know everything. At age 12, naturally, my father doesn't know that either. At age 14, my dad is so hopelessly old-fashioned. And I can imagine when she's 21 that that man is so out of date. At 25 years, dad knows little, but not too much. At age 30... She might say, I must find out what dad thinks about this at age 35. Before we decide, let's get dad's idea first. At age 50, hopefully she'd be, what would dad have thought about that? And at age 60, I hope she would say, my dad knew literally everything. At age 65, I wish she would say, I wish I could talk to my dad just one more time. But that seems to be the pattern, right? In their little eyes, as little kids, we could do no wrong. But we are giving them a lasting impression upon those little hearts and minds of what dad looks like. But as they grow up, they become less and less inclined to listen to us. But then they come back around again. I know I did that with my father, and maybe you've done that with yours. So I wanted to take this morning to give you a concise a depiction of what I learned over the last 17 years. This is what I compiled in my personal life that allowed me to raise Autumn in the manner in which we have, not always perfectly, but these were the governing principles that I used to uh, lead me in my fatherhood and hopefully bring about the fruit in Autumn's life and the maturity that God desires for her. I'm speaking from the heart now. Because again, I know how the world depicts dads. And so often, we now find TV shows and movies where the dads are non-existent and aren't really missed. But we know better, don't we? The statistics tell us so. That our roles as dads are huge in the life of our children. The very first thing that I needed to contend with was some of the preconceptions that the world had concerning the role of the father. And the very first one that I needed to deal with is the whole issue of provision. When it comes to a father's role in the life of the child, provision always seems to be in the top three of the categories that individuals will say is important for their child. I agree that provision is incredibly important, but what we do not discuss is the nature of that provision. What are we providing for our kids? And nine times out of ten, that provision is equal to money. I'm providing for my family monetarily. That's important. It's certainly a responsibility in which we carry as dads, right? 
But it's not the only responsibility, and it's not the top responsibility. And many men that I have discovered, Christian men, are completely willing to say, that's my role. I provide the money, and my wife takes care of everything else. You are disobeying God if you have that mindset. I'm going to tell you straight out. Because money does not equal godliness, right? We have provided everything for the next generation for so many decades, we now have generations of entitlement before us. Providing financially is important, but it's not the top priority. When I talk about the need for a father and what our family actually needs from us, I had to put financial provision in its proper place if I was going to parent Autumn the way God has called me to do it. That's not my sole responsibility. I can't just come home after work and just check out, sit in the lazy boy, turn on the television, and let the house go crazy. That's wrong in so many ways. In so many ways. Your responsibility is not isolated just to provide financially for your family, guys. Okay? Because remember what we said single parent homes that are high wealth are less productive than low-income homes with two members parenting. When God looked at us, His creation, and He said that He will provide all of our needs, He meant needs. He would then look at us and determine that the greatest need that we had is what? Not material comfort. Not monetary wealth. Our salvation in Jesus Christ. That was the greatest need that we had to be able to return to a relationship with God. So we must understand that if we are going to meet the needs of our family, we have to ascertain what the real needs of our family are. And though financial provision may be one element of that, it's not the entirety of that. It is not the totality of my identity as dad. So now that we have gotten past that, I'm going to give you five things that I saw through the scriptures that my family needed from me. Okay, five things. Number one, my family needed me to be the man of God that God has called me to be. Number one, I couldn't do anything else until I first surrendered my life entirely to the Lord and became the man of God that God wanted me to be. Now, does that mean that I have arrived, that I'm doing it perfectly, that I've had my happy sanctification party? No. I'm a work in progress, just like all of you. But that's what I strive for, to become the man of God that God has called me to be. And I found that the man of God is described by five different characteristics in the Bible. Number one, he is a man of prayer. If we are going to be the man of God that God has called us to be, we must be men of prayer. Number two, we must be men of the Word of God, saturating ourselves with the Word of God, allowing the Spirit of God to work through the Word of God to change us from the inside out. We must be men of the Word. Number three, 
We must be men of faith. And what I mean by that is truly believing God and all that He has said. Trusting His promises uh, unapologetically. Trusting Him to be the God that He claims and proclaims to be. And allowing our family to see that in our lives. Not only does Dad believe in God, Dad believes God. So number three, I had to be a man of faith. Number four, I had to be a man of service. As Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve, God called me to be a man who serves my family. And that required humility. That required me to take the position of a servant in my home. And you know what I'm talking about. You know, you know the biblical concept in which I'm trying to wrap your mind around. I'm talking about one who is looking to serve his family unconditionally in humility. Number five. I knew that if I was going to be, needed to be the man of God, I had to be a man of integrity. That every word that came out of my mouth mattered. Every decision that I made mattered. Every action that I entailed mattered. And so I asked the Lord to give me grace and strength to be a man of integrity. That I would put nothing evil before my eyes, before my ears. That I would make sure that I was pursuing purity. That my children saw that the only one who captured my eyes and my attention was my beautiful wife, Dina. That pornography had no place in our home. The drugs and alcohol were not consumed to erode my sober thinking. I needed to be a man of integrity. Number one, we have to be men of God if we are going to truly be the fathers God has called us to be. Number two, we need to be the leaders that God has called us to be. As we discover in God's Word, we have to understand what God has called us to do as those who are responsible before Him for the spiritual condition of our families. That God was asking me to love my wife as Jesus Christ loved the church. To present her blameless and spotless. That God was calling me not to provoke my children unto anger. But that I would... Be the man that God has called me to be in demonstration. Fulfilling the roles in which God has laid out in His Word that they may see that in me. Number three. God has called me to love my kids so much. Right? Say it again. We have to love our kids so much. Unconditionally. That same love that He lavished upon us, we need to lavish upon our kids. Now let me qualify that love based upon biblical principles and understanding and definitions of love that we find in the Bible. Number one, I found that the love that the Bible shows for us is always approachable. That my daughter could come at any time if she needed her dad and I was approachable. 
I'm not going to put her on hold. I'm not going to make her wait in line. I'm not going to set up an appointment with my daughter so her and I can discuss something. The dad was always here for her. And even when I'm here at the church or whatever, if Autumn calls, I take that call. Especially now that she's driving. (laughs) And just pray. Oh, good Lord, please. Hello, how's the car? No. Number one, God was always approachable in his love. Number two, this is huge. That if I'm truly going to love Autumn the way God has called me to love her, I must be the disciplinarian that God has called me to be because God disciplines those that he loves. Discipline's a very hard thing, isn't it? And I think that often we are probably softer than we need to be in whatever form of discipline we choose to exercise within our family. But discipline is so very, very, very important. Our children need to learn that there are consequences to actions. Our children need to know that decisions that they make today can affect them for the rest of their entire life. So if I need to correct, if I need to discipline to help her make better decisions in the future, to help her do what is right rather than what is wrong in the future, that she may be spared those consequences. That's what God would do for me. And because I say I love my daughter unconditionally, that's what I must do for her. Number three. This isn't a problem in our house, but in multiple children's homes it can be. God does not want us to show favoritism as dads towards one kid or the other. See, Autumn had no choice. She knew she was my favorite. (laughs) But if you've grown up in a home where dad has showed favoritism to one child over another, think of the number of Old Testament examples that we discover where favoritism is uh, demonstrated and the problems occurred from it. If I'm going to love unconditionally, I cannot show favoritism to any of my children. Number four of loving our kids unconditionally is spending real time with them. And what I mean by that is that they have your undivided attention when you are with them. And that's huge today. When I kneel in prayer and I go into the throne room of God boldly because of who Christ is and what He has provided for me, I've got Dad's attention, don't I? I can ask Him and talk with Him and I can um, pray with Him and I can weep before Him and I can find mercy and grace and help in my time of need. If we're going to be the dads God's called us to be, we must spend real time with them. Not just occasional time, not just something on the calendar, but real time with them. Showing that they have our undivided attention at those moments and we're saying that we love you by doing so. And number five, and this is enormous, we must be praying for our kids. Pray, pray, and pray some more for our children. Pray, pray, and pray some more for our children. 
And they never get too old to, to pray over and to pray with. Pray with them. Pray for them. Every day, pray for your children. I see it as an act of love. I really do. Jesus prayed for his disciples over and over and over again, and I know it was an act of love on his behalf. You know why? Because prayer is selfless. Prayer requires sacrifice on our behalf, which motivated out of love is the perfect manner in which to pray. In a selfless, sacrificial manner for our children. Number four, our, co- our children must be instructed in the Lord. The world is all too willing to instruct our children in the ways of the world, are, are they not? One way or another, we must instruct our children in the way of the Lord. And what I mean by that is not only must we instruct them in the Word of God, but I like to say it this way, we must also instruct our children in the Word of God in life. Allowing the culture that we currently live in to set a backdrop and a contextualization for how the Word of God must be applied in our everyday life. It's huge. That these things written in the Word of God are not just um, things that were uh, good for Christians back then, but are necessary as Christians today for the world in which we live today because we are facing things today in our world that we didn't anticipate facing 20 years ago, aren't we? Uh, world's changed a little bit in the last 20, 30 years, hasn't it? So I have to instruct my child, training them up in the way of the Lord, which means much more than just giving them facts about the Word of God, which is important. It's one element of it, but it's not the totality of it. We must demonstrate to our children the Word of God in our lives. All theology is meant to be lived out in our lives. And number three in our instructing of our children, huge guys, write this one down. We must listen to our children if we're going to instruct them in the Word properly. What are they going through? What are they facing? What are they experiencing that the Word of God addresses? Because the world they're growing up in is a little different than the world I grew up in. Though nothing's different, everything's the same under the sun, I understand that. But they're coming into contact with different things at different times in their life than I did. And so the very first thing that if I'm going to instruct Autumn properly in the Word of God, I've got to listen to her. I've got to know where she's at. I've got to know what's on her heart that's troubling her, what's in her mind that's troubling her. And then meet her there with the Word of God. And this leads me to my fifth and last point that I'd like to bring to your attention. This one is something that is very dear to me, and I want to bring it to your attention. I'm so thankful the young parents are with us today because this is huge, guys. This is huge. Turn your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I bring your attention to 2 Timothy for this purpose. Paul, the great apostle is writing to a young man named Timothy who he considered a spiritual son in the faith. Timothy grew up with his mom and his grandmother, and we don't really know of the influence the father had upon Timothy in his life. We know his father was a Gentile, and his mother was Jewish. 
But Paul kind of adopted Timothy, and, and Paul had this relationship with Timothy. And the last letter that Paul wrote before he died was to this young man, Timothy. I found that very interesting. So I thought in my parenting, what is so important to Paul that he wanted to instill to Timothy that I could learn from to give me vision farther than the day in which I occupy? As Paul's instructing uh, Timothy on the overall, the big picture, I found these three verses. And it stirred in my heart and I prayed earnestly over them because I saw that God was showing me something uh, just spectacular. Let's read our text together. We start in verse 10. As he's writing this last letter, and this is just a portion of it, I would encourage you to read the whole letter when you get a chance. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endure, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Something grabbed my attention when I saw this. I found that these verses were very forward-thinking. Looking at the big picture. Preparing Timothy in advance for what he was going to experience later on in his life. And the Lord brought me to this section of Scripture when Dina and I were praying and considering education options for our daughter. And one of the things that God instilled on me very strongly in my heart was that I needed as a parent, as a godly father, to prepare Autumn for adulthood. I need to train her up and teach her and prepare her for the moment that she steps out and becomes a young adult on her own. My parenting all has to be working in that direction. So what I do today, I fully understood will have an impact on what happens tomorrow. And one of the choices that Dina and I made was that at the end of Autumn's academic career as a senior in high school at her moment of her graduation, we wanted her to be able to pursue any option that God would open up before her. We wanted her to be equipped to be able to pursue whatever open door God would have for her as an adult, preparing her for that next step in life. See, one of the one of the disadvantages that we have today in our culture is this. Everybody is looking at the moment. There's very little forward thinking any longer in our society. We are stuck in the microcosm of what is today and not considering big picture. Paul knew he was leaving. Timothy was going to be left by himself. And he needed to carry on as a faithful pastor there in Ephesus for this body without Paul being there. One day, I'm going home, okay? And Autumn's going to have to make decisions as an adult. How am I preparing her in, for that moment? 
What am I instilling in her in that moment? Some things I wrote down. Number one, responsibility. I needed Autumn to understand that she must take responsibility for her own actions. If she was going to interact in society properly, she must take responsibility for her own actions. Regardless of what society does, she needed to take responsibility for her own actions. Number two, what she does today can affect her later. And so when it came to educational choices, Dean and I did not do what was expedient for us at the time. We earnestly sought and prayed and asked the Lord, what would you have for Autumn for not only this moment, but for her adulthood? And God led us to put her in private school when we had absolutely nothing financially. At that time, I was making here at the church $180 every two weeks. And here God's saying, put her in private school. Sure, and I'll just go buy a Mercedes at the same time. But we wanted her to have that opportunity. We wanted her to fulfill, be able to fulfill whatever options God had for her. We wanted to be forward-thinking, being responsible, taking responsibility for her own life, uh, self-discipline. That was huge, right? Teaching her how to organize her tasks and then working through them. These were all things that we wanted to instill in her. If she decided that she wanted to go to college, be an A student with great grades and great test scores so someone else would pay for it because we're broke. We're a little selfish in that prayer, I have to admit. But I wanted her to be able to pursue the options and not us do it for her, her work for it, But the long-term goal, the long-term goal. What is the long-term goal for your children? Now, you can't control the future, but you can help them today prepare themselves for tomorrow. And if the Lord tarries and all of our children get to be adults, what have we instilled in them as parents that prepared them for adulthood? Timothy, after I leave, you know, all who desire to live godly lives will face persecution. I'm preparing you for what is coming next. This is huge, isn't it? How are we preparing our children for what is coming next? Jesus did the same things to his disciples. They hated me, they're going to hate you. Preparing them beforehand. Now I understand the context of what Paul is saying here, but understand the big picture here. Look at what he says here. Everything that you've seen in me, my teaching, uh, my conduct... My aim in life, meaning my objective, what I'm shooting for, what I'm going for. My faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. Timothy, these are not just academic. These are just not theoretical. They're actual events that took place in my life. You remember them. And then what does he say here? He says, but God delivered me from them all. Showing and instilling in Timothy that God was faithful. Let me ask you a question. As a father, are you making decisions for your child today that are going to help them in the long run or hinder them in the long run? Be honest with yourself. This is key, crucial, important. 
You know why? Your son or daughter is not going to be five ever again. Your son or daughter is not going to be 10 for more than one year. Your son and daughter is not going to be 15 over again. Your son and daughter is not going to graduate high school again. You get one shot with this. And I saw it that way. And maybe I put undue pressure upon myself, but I thought of what Paul said. It was important enough for him in his last letter before he died to write this to Timothy saying, understand God is faithful. He will rescue me from the persecutions that I've experienced. And then understand, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Understand this, Timothy, that what's coming next is going to be very difficult. How many of you look back at your high school and say, those are the best times ever. I don't know why I didn't understand it. See, I loved high school. I barely went, but I loved it. I hardly applied myself, but... I loved it. But when I graduated, I will tell you, I was not prepared for the next step. And so Dean and I, through this passage and others, really said, all right, what are we doing in our child's life today that's going to help her at that moment that she graduates, that diploma is handed to her, her schooling is officially done unless she goes on to college, what have we done to prepare her for that next step? Especially you who have little boys, young men. How are you preparing them to take that next step? With us, we wanted Autumn to be able to have whatever opportunity, or have a chance. We're not guaranteeing anything. We're not promising anything. But when Autumn graduates, we hope that she stands there and says, these are the opportunities that are before me. And now, because I have prepared myself, I can take that step forward into those opportunities. That's what we wanted for her. Have forward thinking. That job as a dad, that's a dad job, I think, with, of course, our wives. But we always must consider that. What is the long term here? I can't ask you to be the dad God has called you to enough. I can beg you. You know why? Because your family needs you. Your children desperately need you. Our country needs you. The church of Jesus Christ needs you to be the godly father that you need to be. That's why there is such a great need for fathers today.